Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Labor Day weekend, which means we have a holiday weekend clips program for you. It features curator Nicole R. Myers. With Catherine Rothkopf, Myers is the co-curator of Cubism in Color, The Still Lifes of Juan Gris, which opens at the Baltimore Museum of Art on September 12th. Myers is a curator at the Dallas Museum of Art, which originated the exhibition. Across more than 40 paintings, the exhibition explores how Gris brought color to Cubism in still-life painting of striking vivacity. It will remain on view in Baltimore through January 9th, 2022. The outstanding exhibition catalog was published by the two museums and distributed by Yale University Press. It's available for about $45 from IndieBound and from Amazon. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Nicole Myers, after the break. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century. The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works. Photoflux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color. And In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S. Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Art in Practice, the intersection of poetry and visual art, on August 24th at 7 p.m. Central. Visual artist Jeffrey Gibson and poet Laylee Long Soldier will investigate and highlight the influence and collaboration of poets and artists and the intersections between their chosen mediums. 
Gibson's practice merges aspects of Native American visual culture with allusions to contemporary geometric abstraction. The artist references the colors and patterns of 19th century painted rawhide containers, commonly called parfleche, which are associated with particular Native communities in the Plateau, Plains, and Great Basin regions. His painting, Migration, is currently on view at Bemis in All Together Amongst Many, Reflections on Empathy. By intermingling these designs with a style linked to celebrated non-Native artists such as Frank Stella and Joseph Albers, Migration contests an American art history that very often overlooks Native American art. Lately Long Soldier's poems have appeared in Poetry Magazine, The New York Times, The American Poet, The American Reader, The Kenyan Review Online, Bomb, and elsewhere. She is the recipient of an NACF National Artist Fellowship, a Lannan Literary Fellowship, a Whiting Award, and was a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award. She has also received the 2018 Penn Jean Stein Award, the 2018 National Book Critics Circle Award, and a 2021 Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Literature. She is the author of Chromosomery, Q Avenue Press 2010, and Whereas, Grey Wolf Press 2017. She holds a BFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts and an MFA from Bard College. Long Soldier is a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation and lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Free admission, RSVP is required at bemiscenter.org slash events to receive Zoom information. And we're back. Nicole Myers, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Before we get into the specifics and the chronology of Juan Gris' Cubist advance, let's talk for a quick moment about what he brings to 20th century painting. What distinguishes his work from his peers, or at a minimum, his, his Western European near peers? So, you know, Brock, Picasso, and Matisse. One of the things that we try to bring out in this exhibition, it's evident even in the title, is his use and love for color. He was just a natural colorist, was never really interested in the monochromatic palette that characterized the analytic cubism, for example, of Picasso and Brock. But going beyond that, he had this penchant for bold patterns, for these geometric armatures or structures that are highly complex that organize his compositions really throughout his entire 17-year career. These are things that make his brand of cubism, if you will, unique and distinguishes him from, again, his peers in that period. If you know Gris and you look at his works, you will never confuse them for the work of anybody else. Yeah, that's that's absolutely True. You know, you can mistake a Brock for a Picasso and a Picasso for a Brock. But, you know, Gris among that near founding Cubist group is, is certainly unique in that way. Yeah. And also, I think for me, how experimental that he is. One of the things that struck me really early on in working on this exhibition is that he changes his style literally every two to three years. It is astounding what he did. And these weren't just half-baked experiments. He'll take one line of formal inquiry and really take it to its very end, creating these stunning examples that for whatever reason he might decide is not where he wanted to go after all and would completely pivot. He also used a lot of different types of materials, but also supports that I found also really interesting and unique in his production that he would spend six months, for example, between 1916 and 1917, painting primarily on wood panels. You don't usually expect to find that with an avant-garde painter of this period. So for me, that made him that much more intriguing 
that he was interested conceptually in cubism, of course, but was also really interested in the physical properties of the materials he was using and would become almost obsessed with certain lines of inquiry like the wood panels and then decide I've done everything that I can with this and I'm now going to completely change pace and do something else. The catalog, which is quite excellent, is is kind of organized, at least the plate section is, around the, that, that idea that the Gris is working in, I don't know, groupings or whatever a better better phrase would be. As, you know, we all know, Juan Gris was not with, with George Brock in 1908 when he first started building what we now recognize as Cubist forms, and he wasn't there when Brock shared those ideas with Picasso later that summer. Gris comes along a little bit later. In 1910, he, he as far as we know, begins painting in 1910. And he starts by making watercolors that are, I guess to be polite, fairly straightforward, but in which the edges of objects ever so faintly, and I do mean ever so faintly, hint at beginning to dissolve into, uh, say, a white white background. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com of a picture called Three Lamps. It's a watercolor. It's in uh, Bern in Switzerland. But the next year, a year after starting painting, a year after these pretty tame watercolors, Gris is a cubist. Boom, right away. So what got him, what do you think got him from these pretty conservative watercolors to Jar, Bottle, and Glass, the 1911 painting from the Museum of Modern Art that kicks off your show? Well, one thing I think that's worth noting is that by 1908, he's living in the Bateau Lavoir. You know, when he moves to Paris in 1906, he gets introduced to Pablo Picasso almost immediately. And it's Picasso who gets him a studio at the Bateau Lavoir. So he does have a front row seat to the development of Cubism that Brock and Picasso, you know, will start 1907, 1908. So I find that really interesting that he's watching this, that he's in these circles talking about the direction of modern art, literally in the space, seeing this evolution. But you're absolutely right. When he starts, it's with these naturalistic watercolors. And even his first, well, the only extant oil painting that we know of today is also a very naturalistic still life. And then, as you noted, just a year later, they start to have this kind of proto-Cubist aesthetic. And for him, I think the the catalyst for that was Paul Cezanne's work. Not surprisingly, of course, Cezanne also inspired Picasso and Brock as they're developing Cubism. But those really early works from 1911 and early 1912, where you've got these geometric still lifes that are almost sliced into pieces, these sort of open facets, if you will, that are still very flat. That's really from looking at Cezanne. You know, when Cezanne dies in 1906, there's exhibitions held that year and also the following year in 1907. And in many ways, it was like a bomb went off for modern artists just seeing his development of new pictorial devices to get away from illusionistic painting. And different artists will take different things from that. So for Greece, Cezanne was kind of the first step of an artist that was looking at still life, started with a relatively naturalistic idiom and then progressed if one can say, towards abstraction. So those open facets and those strongly geometric simplified forms that we see again in 1911, I think starts with Cezanne. And then, you know, by 1912, you see that he's completely absorbed and adapted both phases of cubism, both analytic and synthetic, which is absolutely astounding that this almost self-taught artist within two years of announcing his desire to become a professional painter has cycled through these styles and with great success. I mean, 1912, he's in two exhibitions. He gets a contract with Conviler, Picasso's dealer. So he jumps into the scene as this really talented, gifted painter almost immediately. 
you can see the influence of Cezanne in, in jar, bottle, and glass, the kind of way Cezanne paints pine trees and the way they move a little bit in the breeze is kind of present here in the way Gris introduces the teeny, teeny, teeny bit of color that's in in the painting in and uses it to present color and to kind of blur some edges, if you will, which which is all kind of a way of saying that jar, bottle, and glass is not colorless. It's almost black and white. And there are a couple of paintings here at the beginning of the show that are similarly nearly colorless and where Gris is figuring out what to do to get color into some in, into places really where, where it hadn't been. How do you think of his, I don't know, you know, I would almost call it tone, his use of tone in his, these early, almost, but not quite proto cubist works. Maybe they are, maybe they are proto cubist. <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that's how we sort of talk about them. Proto cubist in a way is that they're these hybrid works. I mean, you're absolutely right that they're not monochromatic or not, black and white. And I have to say, this is true, of course, of <laughs> most art, but Gris' work in particular really suffers from reproduction, color reproduction even. It tends to make them look very muddy and it eliminates the incredible brushwork and the subtlety of shifting tones. He is so skilled at doing this. He'll do this throughout his entire career. And it's almost impossible to see even in the best reproductions. You really have to see them in person. What I love about these early works, less so in Jar, Bottle, and Glass from 1911, but you see it more in Table at a Cafe, for example, in Chicago's collection, is that there are actually studies in red, yellow, blue. You'll see this in Still Life with Flowers from 1912 that we have in the exhibition from MoMA as well, that there are these studies in primary colors. And to your point, he's definitely trying to figure out, how do I want to work this into the composition? How do I want color like Cezanne to play a part in how we read objects as three-dimensional you know, objects in space, but he hasn't quite figured it out. So they're almost compartmentalized with little areas as he progresses where they start getting blended together. But when you get up close and you look at these paintings, they just have this creamy texture to the paint that he's using. And you mentioned this, the kind of almost feathering of how his contours aren't just open, for example, but these areas of paint really subtly blend into each other and texture plays a role as well. They are subtle and beautiful, and they might look all blue or all yellow from a distance, and you get up close, and they're actually quite colorful. As we've kind of been talking about, Gris' big leap forward happens with just amazing speed. I mean, it took, for example, Matisse kind of six or seven years to get from his first Fauve inklings to Fauvism as as being realized. And here is Gris speeding from zero to fully developed in like a year. I mean, it's really pretty wild. And, and, you know, we should remember how slowly Picasso began as well. I mean, it really makes what Gris is doing here is all the more amazing. And his biggest leap forward, his biggest breakthrough is a picture that's not in the show called The Wash Stand from, from 1912. So far as I know, it's never been exhibited in the United States. I am not sure that I know anyone who's ever seen it. It's in a private collection. It's not dislocated. As Douglas Cooper relates in his famous book, The Cubist Epic, the washstand includes oil on canvas, of course, but also pieces of paper, collage elements, and shards of mirror, which Gris told Cooper, or Cooper knew about Gris having talked about as being interesting to him because, quote, it could not be imitated. 
picture wasn't even illustrated in the catalog for Mark Rosenthal's last big American Greece show, the 1983 retrospective organized by the Berkeley Art Museum. So two things about the washstand, which you, you have an illustration of in, your, in the catalog, which is pretty great. I guess first from a methodological point of view, how do you think through Gris' development and leap with when, when you have to reckon with a painting you can't possibly have seen? <laughs> Always a great challenge for art historians when you're working with archival images and descriptions. At least we're lucky enough to have that for those that saw this exhibited in 1912. It's a really pivotal year for him for a variety of reasons, but he responds to the introduction of collage elements and papier collé that Brock and Picasso will incorporate into their Cubist works that year. And he starts to develop his own style of working with collage elements, both the appearance of collage, these kind of vertical strips that he'll start to use to organize his compositions, but affixing also elements, foreign elements, like the mirror, like the pieces of paper. One of the things that make Gris' incorporation of collage unique is that every time he brings it in, the object that he's including represents exactly what it is. So in this particular painting, the washstand, you know, you would have a mirror, for example, if you were to stand there and brush your teeth or comb your hair. You know, it's a perfect still life composition for someone who's wanting to work in that genre in the sense that it's a pitcher sitting in a basin. So the composition itself, you're looking sort of down and across at the contents of what's on the counter. There's a comb, for example, there's a bottle of perfume or cologne. And then there's a shelf with these shards of mirror that he affixed directly to it. Of course, it's fragmented, at least it seems to be in the reproduction, so that you, the viewer, going up to this highly you know, cubist abstract composition would still feel as though you're walking up to the real thing and see yourself fragmented in this mirror. I love that, this play with what's real and what's not. And it's full of jokes. It's full of painterly jokes. It's jokes about self-portraiture. It's a joke about the bather trope, which had been familiar, you know, in French art going back a hundred years at this point or more. It, it has a curtain at the top of the painting. Very theatrical for Greg. We don't really see right. this again after this. This pulling back of the curtain and kind of, you know, again, to your point, a joke. This, this joy or this playfulness of pulling back the curtain on art, on representation, on what we consider to be naturalistic representation in painting and what the Cubists were rebelling against, that Renaissance Western tradition of becoming more and more illusionistic by using certain pictorial devices and Cubism's aim to tear all that down and show some of the falsehoods involved in creating those illusions. So all of that is there. You know, Gris is just as humorous as Picasso and Brock and how he'll play with different elements in his works. I love looking at the paintings and looking for those clues or those hints at the joy, the humor, in addition to appreciating, of course, what it took to put these incredible images together. It's a picture with which Gree seems to be saying, again, I've never seen it either. I can uh, match your visual punning and advance it. Oh, yeah. Kind of up the ante. Yeah, and it does. By 1913, Gree is not using only these muted tones anymore. He's painting cubism. He's painting cubism in color. What do you think motivated him to advance past, trying not to use the word tonalism because it means something else, right? But through toned, muted color into full, vibrant, booming color? 
I wish I had a good answer for that of why he turns to rich color, apart from the fact that perhaps he always wanted to paint that way. And that exposure to analytic cubism perhaps pulled him onto another path of thinking about working more with a monochromatic palette. And maybe it just didn't suit him. And he turns back really in 1913 as this incredibly pivotal moment in his career when he comes out with the vibrant you know, often saturated tones, and then this incredibly innovative structure for organizing the compositions through these ver vertical strips or planes that shift perspective as you move your eyes across the canvas. You know, each one of these strips shows you a different aspect of the still life composition that he's depicting, whether it's a profile of a glass or tonal passage that goes from white to black to suggest the quality of light or atmosphere in the space. They're brilliant, and they do seem to come from nowhere. I think he's trying to recreate the collage-like effect that he's seeing in the papier collet and collage of his friends and mentors, Picasso and Brock, but he somehow metabolizes it into paint in this totally brilliant way that, I don't know, they just blow me away. You mentioned collage. This, this moment when the paintings begin to explode in color is the moment when collage comes in for Gris. I think I hear you saying that, that for you, there's a relationship between Gris reaching toward one and Gris reaching toward the other. I suppose so. I don't know if collage is the thing that might have tipped his hand towards using color in this way. Personally, I think he was a natural born colorist. If you look at even, again, the first watercolors, if you look at the first oil painting, it's not that they're so bold and bright, but he, I think, really liked working with color and was trying to find a way to introduce that to the style that he's gravitating towards cubism. And maybe that's where he also saw that he had a place to be original, to make more impact, to distinguish himself, perhaps, from his peers. I mean, it's certainly, when, I, when we think of it today, one of the qualities, of course, that does really mark his work apart from works by Picasso and Brock of the same period. In late 1913, Gris' color explodes in a, wow, did he really do that kind of way? It's a painting called <laughs> Grapes from 1913. It, you know, it, it's loud like a cheap suit. Uh, it's, it, it's also at MoMA. I love this painting. It is totally bonkers. Laughter with joy. I mean, it's just totally insane in the best possible way. You're absolutely right. So there are two things about this painting that jump out. One is the obvious one, bam, color. But the other is that it's full of jokes and references to cubes and to the grid. And, and then Gris is doing all of this at once. It is the color that makes the grid not drawn or enforced lines. So the grid is the color itself. So we see a napkin, for example, on a tabletop, and the napkin is broken up into a grid by, not by line, but by color. Well, this painting feels like a summation of everything Gris has learned so far and a declaration of where he's going. What, what do you think he's, um, for you, what is he doing with this painting? I think that's a great assessment. So what's interesting is that he paints this in the summer of 1913. He goes to the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is right at the middle of the canvas, by the way, a tiny little triangle of Mediterranean. <laughs> I know, it's right there. You know, and he, he goes to Coulure, which is that small fishing town where the Fauves go. One Fauve in particular. 
<laughs> one pope in particular, who, as far as we know, he does not meet until the following summer in 1914. But he had to have known that this was the, the summering spot of Matisse and other foves. I wonder, too, if that's where some of this bright color comes in. I mean, we know so many artists who went to southern France specifically to paint color or were inspired by the bright white light of the Provencal sun. So he wouldn't be unique in responding to it in that way. But you're absolutely right that it feels like a summation of all of the ideas so far that he's been experimenting with. And it, he breaks free from the strips. You know, he stays there for not less than a year of experimenting with how to combine these multiple views of the object with these other signs or indicators for, let's say, texture or volume. And he he just kind of goes off in a totally different direction. During that period, he didn't paint a lot of still lifes. In fact, this is where we get some of the few landscapes that Gris will paint. And I wonder if breaking from working in this kind of hermetic, sealed environment of a studio, for example, with set objects and being in a landscape brought new ideas. And you see that infused back into the picture. But I also think it's really interesting that you know he starts experimenting with collage in 1912. He won't start really incorporating it in his paintings with any regularity until 1913. And then it's still sort of hit or miss. Here, it feels like he's finally come to understand how to translate the effect of layering different fragments or pieces of paper or collage elements purely into oil paint. So when I look at grapes from 1913, you know, we don't get the vertical strips. Instead, we get maybe some of the first examples of him layering or overlapping these colorful planes on top of each other that he has not yet mastered. So it's a bit of a breakthrough for him, almost building collage with all these different patterns and textures that you mentioned in a new way that was novel for him. And it's the first time too, maybe not the first time, but we see it a bit more pronounced where he's incorporating shadow as these flat patches of just pure black, you know, in the middle of the composition that break up these vibrant red, yellow, orange shades. I mean, it's a really daring picture. It makes me smile every time I see it because the works from 1913, the earlier works, the strip paintings, they're colorful, but they're not as vivid and vibrant as this will be. And he doesn't stay in the style for very long. What's kind of wonderful is that he goes back to Paris at the end of the summer and starts on what will become basically a year of papier collé, which are almost monochromatic. So he has this brief flirtation with these bold, vibrant colors, playing with the grid and with the patterns, making the grid actually more visible, not a hidden structure. And then somehow taking those lessons back to paper. It's this interesting back and forth, I think, between media. These next two questions, I'm going to ask them in late 1913, but they're true of 1911 and they will be true in 1927. Gris is sticking with, with the Cubist vocabulary of pipes and glasses and bottles and guitars and violins and puns, violins and violins. Why do you think he holds on to Picasso and Brock's vocabulary, even as he... I think does something pretty different. There's the easy answer in saying that these were accessible household items. He didn't have a lot of money. These were things apart from perhaps musical instruments that you would have laying around the house or the artist studio as props. There's kind of an ease. I think also of Cezanne and, you know, the idea of apples that, you know, rot after time. <laughs> that if you're using objects like bottles or pipes, they're not going to decompose. They're always going to be the same so that you can use them and pick them back up whenever you want. 
But I don't know that that's really truly the answer why he sticks with the set repertoire. One thing, though, that he seemed to be proud of is that he credits himself as introducing the siphon or, you know, sort of a a way to carbonate your soda drinks to, to modernism, that he'll be the first one to do this. I've not gone back to vet and verify if that's accurate, but I trust Gree that if he felt very strongly about that, that he felt very proud that he was introducing a very modern mechanical object into this traditional genre of the still life. Breathing air into the genre. I love that. That's absolutely perfect. Yes. And bringing a bit more modernism. If you think of some of these other objects as being more or less timeless, the siphon very much places you into the early 20th century. So it gives a sense of updating the genre. The other question I wanted to ask that really covers the range here from 1911 to the end is to what extent was Gree concerned or self-conscious about his his technical ability, his experience and skill or self-perceived lack thereof as a painter? He was incredibly self-deprecating and very, very self-conscious. And I write about this a bit in the book. You read through his letters and he's always bemoaning the fact that while he feels that his conceptual ideas are solid, that his hand is lagging behind in terms of being able to bring them to fruition. And it's something that he experiences throughout, you know, his short career. He's never quite feels like he's landed there. And at one point even says that he thinks that color is his weakest area, which just has to make me smile since that's often what we appreciate so much in his work now. I think he's such a gifted colorist that he actually thought that was his weak suit. Goes to show, I think, how hard he was on himself. But, you know, he had a very fast, mostly informal training. And I think he was playing this game of catch up. So probably always felt a little bit behind in terms of where he might have liked to have been in terms of being able to paint exactly as he saw them in his mind. But you wouldn't know it from looking at the pictures, which I just find really incredible that they're just masterpieces of painting, pure painting. If you know nothing else about cubism, it doesn't even matter. You walk up to these pictures and they're just so beautifully made that he would have doubts about his technical ability is mind boggling to me. Do you think that all of this, all of what you just said, is related to why Gree dates his paintings, not just by year, but also by month? I think so. It's so unusual that he is constantly tracking progress. And he mentions, uses the word progress consistently in his letters to his dealers, where he's haunted by this idea that he needs to be making progress, that he has to be heading somewhere. You know, of course, when we look at his objects, it makes it easier. The ones that are dated with month and year, which is the bulk of his production, that you can really line them up and see. You can see the dead ends. You can see certain breakthroughs and avenues that he'll then pursue, perhaps in a different direction. So it's not a perfectly linear progress, of course. I don't think any artist probably progresses in that kind of linear way. But it's really astounding that he felt the need to document on a month-to-month basis where his art was going. Tell me about Gris' paint finishes, and not just in at the end of 13, I mean, overall. Are they, are they different from his peers? And by peers, I don't just mean Picasso and Brock, because by the time I think Gris' finishes get really interesting, he's very much in discourse and indeed in league uh, with Henri Matisse. I mean, it's a really good question. I'm probably less well-equipped to be comparing and contrasting them necessarily to the wide variety of peers, of course, that he's you know, communicating with and certainly engaging with in an artistic dialogue. 
But in terms of the finishes themselves, I mean, he cared deeply about the surface effects on his pictures. I mean, they're very labored upon, and I don't mean in a difficult way, but in a very careful and thoughtful way in terms of using different types of tools beyond paintbrush, beyond the wood comb, for example, to do the false wood graining. In fact, he often used rags, fingers, you know, used paintbrushes. He didn't use those metal combs the way that Brock did so religiously. Then his pictures, if you look at the wood graining across his paintings over time, they're really different. They also evolve, if you will, using different techniques to try to get different effects. And he'll layer them. You know, in 1915, he has this fun moment where, and he's not alone in doing this, he's adding, you know, sand and even sawdust to kind of give certain passages a bit more relief, a bit more texture, incorporating them, I think, to challenge maybe the overriding flatness that was, you know, one of the characteristics of synthetic cubism. He didn't varnish necessarily the entire surface of his pictures, but he uses it selectively to make certain colors either sink or, again, have a different type of surface effect than others. So he's highly attuned to the different type of surface effects he wants to achieve, and he'll use it to unify the compositions. I think for him, that was also a strategy. If you're looking at a cubist surface and it's fragmented, it always runs the risk of not feeling harmonious or unified. And this was something he spent a lot of time thinking about, of balancing compositions through form and through color, but also through texture. And I do wonder if that is another quality that distinguishes him from other artists working in these periods, that it was a very deliberate choice, and it's all part of the total balance of the image that you see in the finished picture. Speaking of the varnish you mentioned, that's that's got to be a, a callback to the 1912 washstand painting and its mirror or mirrors, <laughs> which, you know, none of us have seen. So it's hard to know how true that, that may or may not be. You mentioned two 1915 paintings, Ace of Clubs and Four of Diamonds. It's at the National Gallery of Art. I, I side with your description of what's on the surface of the painting is sawdust, but fancy pantsy registrars would note that they're fine wood particles. <laughs> I, I just love that that upmarketing term in a painting with sawdust on the surface. <laughs> I thought, you know, I could say fine wood particles, but to me that's sawdust and that's maybe a little bit more accessible and approachable. Um, well, what what, it thinking is. About. I mean, what does this mean? What it is. Tiny, tiny wood chips. Um. <laughs> the other the other painting that you referenced from that year is 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 known as Gree didn't call it this abstraction from 1915 it's in the Phillips it's also in Washington DC I'm glad you mentioned these two paintings because they kind of mark a real change in how Gree is using color he's using more color but he's using fewer colors and so here he's here it's it's blue and green and references to to wood so there's like some brownish colors too but in terms of what we think of as boom boom colors blue and green this has to be his attention to Matisse, I think. He's using colors that reference Matisse, that are torn from Matisse. You know, there's Matisse's standing riffian at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg that Matisse painted in 1912 that is only blue and green. Flowers and ceramic plate of Matisse's from the fall of 1913, which is almost entirely blue and green. Goldfish and sculpture of 1912 at MoMA is, is blue and green with a couple other colors and view of Notre Dame, Matisse's 1914 painting at MoMA is mostly blue, a little bit of green, lots of black, and Gris is also using black here. Is that what we're looking at when we look at these two small, terrific paintings, Gris cozying up to Matisse and saying, I'm, I'm with you now? 
I think you're really astute because, in fact, Gris finally meets Matisse again in southern France on the Mediterranean in Coulier in the summer of 1914. World War I breaks out and he gets stranded and Matisse sort of reaches out to help and it starts what becomes essentially a, a, a lifelong friendship between the two artists. And what's really fascinating is that up to this point, Gris has been working in papier-coller, working with pasted paper, relatively monochromatic, I say that loosely. When he gets back to Paris and starts painting in early 1915, the time of these two paintings that you've just been talking about, he explodes into color and he explodes into blue and green. I think we definitely see the impact of that moment of exchange with Matisse. In fact, it's two ways. You'll see Matisse making some of his most abstract, cubist-like, more somber paintings, probably influenced by his time spent with Gris that summer. Where we really see the influence of Matisse is in Still Life Before an Open Window, the Place Ravignon. It's credited as another of Gris' contributions to Cubism is the introduction of the motif of the still life before an open window to the Cubist idiom. And it seems very likely that he gets the motif from Matisse. I mean, of course, a still life before an open window, or even if it's a closed window, is a motif that you'll find in Renaissance painting up to this moment in the 20th century. But the still life before an open window, Place Ravignon, that's in Philadelphia's collection, is huge. It's a really big, ambitious, monumental painting. I think it's the biggest thing he's done to date. So the fact that he spends time with Matisse, comes back to Paris, puts down Papier-Coller as if it never happened, and paints this manifesto. Again, I think if people know Gris, they often think of this painting as being this kind of iconic moment in his career. And again, that painting is mostly blues and greens. So I think you're right that there's this moment where he's applying the lessons that he's learned from looking at Matisse's work, from talking to him, but bringing it back again into the aesthetic of Cubism. I really loved the Matisse Radical Abstraction show, that moment in the Art Institute, I think John Elderfield and Gloria Groom did about a decade ago. But that show and that catalog skipped Gris. And, and Gris' influence on Matisse, perhaps one or both of them was holding that in reserve for another show and another day. But one of the things that this part of your show screams is Matisse. Another way Gris engages with Matisse is Gris had been painting objects on tabletops before now. I mean, obviously, perhaps. You know, the tabletop being a major site for Cezanne and, and afterward not that other still life painters hadn't painted tabletops, but, but Gris makes, uh, but Cezanne begins to destabilize it. We see Gris starting in 1915 and thereafter, not just putting things on tabletops, but deconstructing the surface of the tabletop and rearranging it in his paintings, which he will keep doing for the next decade. What does that move allow him to do? I love how you just described that, this kind of deconstruction also of the tabletop, that it's not just the setting, but that it becomes this integral part of the structure. I think it allows him to think differently about the composition and how he wants to show the different elements of the still life spread out across the canvas. When we get to this period, he starts really playing with shards or fragments that are often triangular in shape. Some of them are black, as you've noticed, to sand in for shadows. I mean, they're really sharp. And the paintings themselves start to take on, of course, 
on the one hand, there's an emphasis of flatness. But when you look at them with those alternating triangles in black, they look faceted themselves. I mean, the paintings take on this incredible 3D quality. So I think treating the table as also part of the still life to be fragmented and to be sort of decomposed or analyzed across the surface of the picture was yet another breakthrough of how to keep driving in this direction of showing 3D space using alternate means. Yeah, just to try to build on that point with maybe a specific painting, the, the 1916 still life from Detroit, we'll have it on manpodcast.com too, of course. He seems to be asking, can cubism be three-dimensional, even though the whole point of the damn thing is to flatten space? I mean, he, he seems to be using the means you described to question the entire project itself. Yes, it looks like origami. Yes, I love yes, that's this. very good. <laughs> I mean, really, if, if you think, to your point, it's very sculptural. In addition to still reading very flat, which is quite an achievement, it's at the tail end of what becomes this short experimentation with pointillism, you know, starting to incorporate small passages of it in works like Glass on Table from the Denver collection and using it in the way that Picasso and Brock do as a symbol or as a sign for transparency of the glass, for reflected light, pins of light hitting the glass. But he takes it to this extreme and it basically crescendos in Detroit's painting where you get the signification of light through these triangular shards in yellow and in tan and in gold, using pointillist dots of color to suggest transparent decanters and glasses. I mean, a total nod to Seurat down to the fact that he's using contrasting complementary colors like purple and yellow, such a favorite of Van Gogh, for example. He brings it all together in these incredible pointillist compositions that are among his most colorful, but also his most abstract. I mean, he really pushes it to an extreme. And in fact, he'll completely stop. This is one of those lines of inquiries that even though I find them so appealing and so successful, we put the Detroit paint on the cover of our book, very quickly, it almost throws him into a crisis. And he feels as though his works have become too mechanical, too cold in the way that he'll describe Seurat's work as much as he admires them. And there's a complete and total backlash that you see in his art not long after he makes the Detroit painting. He'll adopt a completely different style. Sinoch too, of course, because he's is physically with, with Matisse at about this time. And Matisse is also financially supporting Gris at about this time. And and he's on Sinak's physical territory. Sinak had been crucial to Matisse and, of course, was crushed when Matisse went in a different direction. But if memory serves, you know, Matisse had a Sinak or two. Gris would have seen that probably both when he was with Matisse, but also in that in that physical geography. So a moment ago, we talked about how Gris fractured his tabletops and made that made that a thing. In his final years, in kind of the last half decade or so, he begins to situate his compositions within outlines. So he loses the room, if you will, and just paints an outline around the action, around a bottle, around a newspaper, or around whatever. Why? What's he doing there? What's that about? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's starting around 1920, 1921. He starts to create what I call vignettes, where he makes these very tight groupings, still life groupings, and he borders them with flat colors. With Lacanigu from 1921, sort of an off-white color. Later, he'll adopt red, for example, as the background. And 
the still life elements within the vignette do often have contours. They don't really interlock or interpenetrate anymore. They're not fragmented planes. There's a new emphasis on solidity of the object. And they sort of abut, fit together like pieces in a puzzle, as opposed to, again, the overlapping planes and fragments that we associate with sort of earlier phases of cubism. I mean, I think for him, this is an outgrowth of what started during World War One with the return to order, of which he was really, I think, a leader of intrinsically going back to, quote unquote, more traditional Western values, seeking more classical balance or, again, the solidity, the stability. And he's just taking it to almost its natural ends by the time we get to what will become the last, you know, five, seven years of his life. I think for him, he becomes much more interested in harmony, in what he calls a lyrical, poetical, poetic quality. He wanted to balance his words, you know, prose with poetry. So the kind of abstract armature that we might see in a painting like Detroit with maybe a more subtle approach to balancing colors and to balancing forms and keeping things legible, which again, is really one of the great hallmarks of his brand of cubism is that the primacy of the object was always really important to him. And maybe those works of the 20s was him realizing that he had taken abstraction as far as he wanted to take it and developing his own language, but wanting to return to the object and have more emphasis on this hermetic world that he's creating. But what's incredible about these compositions paintings like The Painter's Window from 1925 and Baltimore's collection, is that you get a sense of that lyrical quality, the formal rhyming of the shapes of the objects, which have been reduced to very similar rectilinear shapes, for example. And you sense that there's some kind of symmetry or that there's something happening with the play between the shapes that are similar but not identical. And it was this brilliant scholar, James Mai, who wrote this article that's somewhat obscure. Unfortunately for him, he discovered these incredible symmetrical systems that Gris was using in his compositions. So, for example, the painter's window, you sense the stability and you might not be able to tell exactly where it's coming from. But in fact, the entire composition is symmetrical along a diagonal that cuts from the upper right corner to the lower left corner of the picture. You can basically map out almost every single compositional, main compositional line or element in the painting across the symmetry. And in fact, you can do that in most of his works from the 1920s, maybe from, I don't know, about 1924, 25 onward. It's just astounding. I think it becomes a bit of a, a game for him. Finally, guitars. The last five paintings in the show are guitars. Yes, I know one's a mandolin, close enough. Gris started painting guitars in 1913. He's still painting them at the very end, as you so plainly and directly point out in, in, in those last five paintings of, of the show. Gris would have known that Picasso had started making guitars, so three-dimensional objects sometime between October and December of 1912. Gris starts using them the next year in his in his work, and he keeps making them until the end. You know, nothing probably could be more Picassoid than, than than guitars. So why does Gris use them, and why does he keep using them? It's a really good question. I wish I had the answer. I mean, there's a period of time, sort of the later 19-teens, where in fact we don't see the musical instruments quite as much. We included them in the checklist for our exhibition as Katie and I really wanted to draw on themes that are present in both the Dallas Museum of Arts painting and Baltimore paintings. So 
within the incredible production of still lifes that Grieb produces in his lifetime, we gravitated towards those that showed more of a connection with the works in our collections. But you're absolutely right that at the end of his life, you get this resurgence of the musical instruments and not just the guitars, mandolins, others. This is the probably the only moment that scholars, and I tend to go with them on this, gravitate towards interpreting the subjects in the sense that you get these still lifes before windows. But for the first time, the focus isn't on what's on the other side of the window. It's really on this hermetic sort of sealed world of the artist. And the inclusion of an object like a mandolin, for example, it really relates strongly to 17th century still life tradition, whether it's Spanish, whether it's Dutch, and you know, allegories of the senses of music, of hearing. The painter's window, including a palette, this is the first time that Gris starts including elements of his own trade into the picture. So there's a bit of an autobiographical quality, a self-reflexive quality, but painting materials traditionally in Western still life are also allegories of the arts of vision, of seeing, so that you get music and an emphasis on visual at the end. It does feel as though in this moment, there's a bit more meaning to be had in the still life elements that he's arranging. And certainly if you think about the fact that at this point, he's quite ill. In 1920, he starts to show the first signs of a chronic illness that will be completely misdiagnosed really throughout the rest of his life. He eventually dies in 1927 of chronic renal failure. But again, they didn't know that's what he had. So from 1924, forward, he has these great bouts of illness where he's not able to produce very much, followed by moments when he's able to paint and is quite prolific. But it's becoming more and more frequent for him. So the fact that you get these more traditional types of still life compositions and what will become really the last few years of his life does seem to take on extra meaning as he's facing his own mortality. You know, I kind of think I see guitars there in the teens. There's, there's a painting that's not in the show, but that I think kind of gets at some of the things you just talked about called Seated Woman. It's in a private collection in Madrid, and the woman is made from two guitars. So I'm not sure he ever lets them down or ever stops making those sound and vision jokes. I, you know, those sound and vision jokes are even in that 1912 watch stand too. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to imply that he doesn't. It's really about the frequency with which we see them so that, you know, it stays a motif. It's always a constant. You're absolutely right about that. But that we get in the 19 teens, some maybe more variety than we've seen before. And we did put some of those works as you saw in the exhibition as we found them to be some of the best examples, which was our goal of the still lifes, you know, works like the sideboard or the chessboard glass and dish. It's just that when you get to the later 1920s, almost everything has a musical instrument, which was maybe not the case before. So there does seem to be sort of a renewed emphasis, if you will, on these on these objects. And the fact that they're not fragmented or abstracted, that they, you know, reappear with wholeness alongside, of course, other motifs that he's used throughout his career. They just have such a pronounced presence that maybe didn't feel as pronounced before. And I'm also just trying to shout out a painting I really like, Seated Woman, because, I mean, one of the other <laughs> things I like about that painting is the, the woman's hands are the strings of the guitar. Sound-making joke. It's so good. <laughs> they're, so, they're so great. I mean, and I think if people know Gris' work, they might know better his figural works. Of course, he did do lots of Cubist figures. It's just that still life is really his preferred motif, his preferred genre, and is the bulk of his work, of course, are still lifes, but he makes such great figural work as well. Nicole Myers, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun and such a pleasure to talk about Grieve with you. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.